So we did Acts 12 on Sunday. We kind of uh, skipped a bit. So not this Sunday, the previous Sunday. So it'll be a little review and I'll try to add on what we should add on. One note in the book of Acts, it never says, and they lived happily ever after. Not even the end, we'll get there pretty quick. It never says, and they lived happily ever after. In Acts, what you see is waves, right? Like, wow, things are going so good. And then there's a problem. And then that problem, they work through it and walk through it. And then things start to go well again. And then there's a problem because it's just like life. Now, why would God have life like that where, hey, it seems like things are great and then down, and then things are great and then down. There's a story, it's probably apocryphal. I don't know if it's true. I've never tried to actually check it out. I like it too much. So I'll just say it's true. But in the 1900s, the Northeast of the United States was super good at catching cod. Probably too good. That's why there's not so many cod left. And they had an abundance of cod and they couldn't sell anymore. And so they're wondering like, how do we expand our business? Well, the West Coast was just starting to take off and San Francisco was this center where people like to eat cod. So they had this idea, let's take the cod we catch and let's ship it to San Francisco because that's a new market, it'll expand our market. Well, the only way they could do it back then was to freeze it. So they would freeze the cod in New England, and then ship it across by rail to San Francisco. But the only problem was when it thawed out, people didn't like the taste. The taste had changed. And so like, oh, I don't really like this. So they're like, well, what can we do? Well, we could live ship them. We could build big tanks, fill them with seawater. And then it's only a couple, like four days they could ship across the United States. So we'll ship them across, then they'll arrive live and it'll be awesome. So then they started that. And the fish would get to San Francisco But because they'd been in this tank sitting still, sloshing around for four or five days, getting warm, the texture was all wrong. So nobody was buying it. So like, oh man. So then they put inside the tanks, these giant catfish that are the natural predator for cod. And so all the way from New England to San Francisco, these cod would be being chased by these catfish and it would keep them in shape. So that when they arrived in San Francisco, they tasted right and had the right texture. They weren't soft and mushy. I wonder if the shape of our world right now, when it feels like a catfish is chasing us, I wonder if that's so that we arrive in New Jerusalem with the right texture and taste. Because you see that really from Genesis three on. There's this pattern that when things seem good, there's probably a catfish coming. That's probably what's gonna happen, right? And, and the ups and downs and the hills and valleys and all that kind of stuff is the recipe that God knows that creates the kind of people that he wants to spend eternity with. And it doesn't happen any other way in the broken world that we live in. So what we see in this chapter is pretty simple. The world attacks the church The church attacks the world through prayer. God acts and the gospel increases. 
It's one of my favorite chapters to me in the whole book of Acts. It stitches the two sides together. It's Luke taking a moment and what I think he's doing, and this is what I said on Sunday, he's doing biblical theology. I'm gonna show you a picture of what actually happens in life. So we did that a couple Sundays ago. So let's pick it up and race through it. Verse one, Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers, 16 soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Herod, we looked at him two Sundays ago. He's a bad guy. He is a bad photocopy of a bad photocopy of a bad photocopy, at least going back to his grandpa, Herod the Great. That it's just been, this family line is messed up. And Luke says, he specifies how James gets killed. And Luke is a wordsmith. He doesn't waste words. It says he was killed with a sword. Rome typically killed people, how? Crucifixion, all right? The Jews typically killed people, stoning. This is unique. When somebody was a heretic, they would have their head cut off. So Luke is very wordsmithy wise saying, Herod cut off James's head. And what Herod did by saying that was, this sect is heresy. And then the people saw this and they got super stoked. And Herod, for Herod, that was like blood in the water. He's like, he goes, goes on a feeding frenzy. He's like, you're stoked with that? Okay, I'll kill the next heretic. And Peter is grabbed. And if he's not stopped, my guess would be he would have killed all 12 of the apostles. He's like a shark that smells blood, right? It's a family deal. It's mafia. His grandpa, brutal, killed everyone around him, just killed people. That's what he did, right? So I want you to notice two things. If you look back at chapter 11, the church is in stride. It's just doing so well. Antioch has been started. There's grace, there's peace, it's brilliant. There's generosity. The church in Antioch is taking a collection of money together to go and then give this money down to the church in Jerusalem. These age old enemies, like it's there, the church is hitting its stride and then it gets attacked. I think when you're really effective in ministry, you should anticipate an attack. That the enemy wants to take you out when you're doing damage to his kingdom. But for some reason, like we don't believe that, do we? We're always like, why, How, why is this happening? Oh no. It always reminds me of the movie, The Three Amigos. Hey, who's seen that? It's, I'm dating myself now, that's pretty good. So Three Amigos, if you don't know it, 
great movie with uh, Steve Martin. He's a cowboy with his two buddies and they are actors in this series where they always go in and they do this little dance routine and they fire their guns and then they always save the town. Well, the series gets canceled. They don't have any jobs, but there's this little town in Mexico that could tune in this series with an with a old TV and they watched it and they believed it was real. They didn't know it was actors, right? This is back in the early 1900s. So like, whoa. And they have a really bad bully who's trying to destroy their town. So they call them up right when they get fired, just Providence. They call them, hey, would you come down here and save us? So they think, oh, we're going down there to do a movie. Yeah, sure, we'll come down there. So they go down there and they get there and they're on their horses and they got all their fancy gear on and they're like running around doing their like skits and wah, you know, and they have this funny little dance when all of a sudden the bullies show up and they're like, there's the bad guys. Oh, well, it's time for us to do our little dance again, our little skit. And the bullies are just like, what in the Sanhedrin is going on? So one of them just pulls out his gun and shoots Dusty Bottoms. And he gets, he's like, I'm bleeding. They're using real bullets. They're using real bullets. I think that's a lot of Christians when they get attacked by the enemy. What? He's using real bullets. Yep, he uses real bullets. I think this is what the church said when James got his head cut off. What? They're using real swords. We thought it was the plastic kind. Don't be surprised when you get attacked because we're in a real battle and the enemy uses real bullets. And what's sad is this, it takes James getting his head cut off for the church to do verse five, earnestly pray. Why is that? Isn't that the same today? It takes when you get shot. Oh, he's using real bullets. When your marriage is on the rocks, or your kids are going south, or the business is messed up, or depression hits you, or sickness, or a real spiritual attack, then you're like, oh, I better pray. Why does it take that? to get our attention where we actually begin to pray. It's sad to me because I think we might be able to avoid some of that because Ephesians chapter six says we have two weapons, God's word and prayer. And a lot of times it takes a catfish chasing us to get on our knees and pray or open our Bible as a sword of the spirit. When the best the best training is, hey, every day I'm gonna be training. Every day I'm gonna be in the word. Every day I'm gonna be praying for my wife and my kids. Every day I'm gonna be asking that God prepares my kids for their spouses. And every day I'm gonna be praying, God, unite me. Make me the kind of man that my husband deserves. I pray that every day. So it's not getting shot that makes me earnestly pray. And yet, most likely, it will take events like this to get the church to pray. Remember September 11th, the following Sunday? Do you remember that? It was unbelievable. I mean, it was unbelievable. 100% church growth in most churches in America because it takes events like that to wake us up and for us to realize there's a real enemy and he's using real bullets. So here we have 
the battle line's drawn. Herod and Rome and 16 soldiers and two chains on one side. And on the other side, earnest prayers of the church. There's the battle line. So verse six. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and centuries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in his cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. It's like me getting Myron dressed, right? He doesn't just get dressed. He's like, hey, put on your shoes. Hey, put on your pants. Hey, put on your coat. I mean, it's so like pedantic. It's hilarious. And he went out and followed him. And not knowing what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city it opened for them of its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. Now, Peter came to himself. He said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. How great is this? Peter just sleeping being guarded by two guards who were sleeping probably next to him, a guard at the door, probably another guard outside there, four of them. They'd work in, you know, there'd be four groups of four who'd take shifts. And he's sleeping soundly. And you read most commentaries and they're like, he was sleeping soundly because Isaiah 26 says that those that keep their minds stayed on you will be kept in perfect peace. That's possible. I just think, Peter was a sleeper, right? Jesus asked him to pray, Matthew 26. Hey, come pray with me. My soul is exceeding sorrow unto death. I'm, this is killing me. Peter, pray with me. What does Peter do? <laughs> like three times, Jesus comes and wakes him. The final time he's just like, go ahead and sleep, man. You tired man. <laughs> then Acts chapter 10, right? He's, he's up, he's out on the veranda of Simon the Tanner's house, praying and what happens to him there? <laughs> just falls asleep. I think he just was a deep, he's just a sleeper, man. That's all he is. He's a good sleeper. And he's so sleeping, the angel comes and it says that a light shone in the cell. So the angel, I can just see the angel show him like, ta-da! And, it, and Peter just, <laughs> like I can see moments doing it again, like, ta-da! Really? <clears throat> Nothing. Give him a little kick, nudge, nothing. The word struck, it's a very kind of violent term. It's the same term that's used when Peter cuts off Malchus's ear. He struck like that kind of force. Like the angel's literally like, bang, get up, bro. <laughs> get up, get up quickly. Oh, uh, uh. it's like waking up your teenager. Like, get out of bed, please. All right, so then they start walking out and, and the gate opens like a la Star Trek. And then the angel's just gone. No hug, 
No goodbye, no like good luck, no advice. Like terrible bedside manner for this angel. He's like the, just a typical, like he reminds me just of a typical man, like not huggy, luggy, huggy, dovey. No, I'm not giving you anything. Just get, hey, you'll figure it out. See ya. It's awesome. And Peter's like, whoa, I'm set free. Wow. The message to me in this little section is in verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Luke says it twice. This is 11.59 and 59 seconds. There's no time left. God has waited and waited and waited. You have to know this. God is even control at mid, is even in control at midnight. God is never late and he is seldom early. You have to know that about life. God is never late and he is seldom early. And it's always seeming like it's that night, it's when every when all hope is lost. That's when God shows up. At midnight, 11, 59 and 59 seconds. And our job is to keep the faith when it comes to our marriage, when it comes to our children, when it comes to salvation of loved ones, we're to keep the faith. Okay, God, you can do something. It may seem like there's no time left, but you don't need time. And so I'm gonna keep my faith in you. Hopefully you have times in your life where it feels like I'm at the midnight hour and God rescues you on that very night. Because it's the best. It's the best. So I can remember engineering. I was called in my sophomore year by my counselor. And he told me I had a 2.25, which I just didn't go to class my first two years. Just as said, you can't not go to class and expect to do well, right? So I just didn't go to class and I would show up pretty much for, pretty much for the tests and wing it. So, and a 2.25 does not get you into what's called the professional engineering school. You just don't get in. So I was a pre-engineer, 2.25, get called in. It may have even been a little bit less than that. I may be generous to myself right now. <laughs> it's getting like straight C's. It may have been a 2.0. So uh, I got called into my counselor's office. He said, you will never get into the pro school at Oregon State University. Change your major or apply to Montana State University, they take engineers like you. It's like, what a rip on them, man. <laughs> you don't think much of Montana State. I was like, really? Okay. My main problem was this. I wasn't following Jesus. That was my real problem. And my bad grades were simply a reflection of a life that was out of control. So that summer, I got myself straightened up with Jesus. I got my life straightened up with Jesus. And then I went back to school and just took all the classes I could. Got pretty much straight A's, did much better. Thought, man, I'm gonna apply. But you don't move a 2.25, being generous, much in one year, you just don't move it much. And so I reapplied and guess what? I was denied. 
So I got out an application to Montana State University, okay? <laughs> Looks like I'm going to Montana State, all right. Whatever they are, I'm gonna be a caribou or an elk, whatever they are. Instead of a beaver, I'm a caribou. And at the midnight hour, probably with the help of my mom, who was an angel of light, I had a meeting with the dean and the dean took a look at my before and after and I actually got a chance to share Jesus with him. He's like, what happened to you? Like you were a terrible student and you are a good student now. Like what happened to you? And I said, I got saved. I believe in Jesus now. He's like, I don't know about any of that, but I do know this right here. (laughs) I can see this right here. And so he let me in at the midnight hour. God is never late. Don't give up. Don't give up. That may be why Peter slept well. God's not late. If he's gonna do something, it can happen at midnight. And he sleeps well. Never, never give up. Galatians 6, 9 says this. Do not grow weary in well-doing. For you will, it's a promise. Now you might, you will reap a harvest if you faint not. Or, in my translation, if you don't give up. Don't give up. There is a harvest. God's not late. Trust him. That to me is the message of this little section. So Peter's let out. Verse 12. When he realized this, he took off to the Mediterranean Sea, got on a boat, and got out of there. (laughs) Nope. That's what I would have done. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. This is John Mark. He'll come into our story in a little bit. Where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And so they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. What? (laughs) But mentioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Just what a fantastic story. I love this. I love it. Verse five, earnest prayer for Peter, right? So they're in a prayer meeting right now, praying, God, please let Peter out. Please don't let him have his head cut off. Please. Rhoda, she's a little squirrely, it seems like, (laughs) right? She doesn't open the gate. Like that would have been a simple thing to do. She's squirrely. She's like, it's Peter, it's Peter. They're like, no, it's not Peter. Peter, please, God, let Peter out of, please, we don't want to get his head cut off. It is, it's him outside the door. No, it's not, his, it's his angel. Now, if an angel is outside, wouldn't you want to go see him? Like, we should go look at his angel at least. Let's stop praying and go look at the angel. Like, they, they're just so amazing, right? Peter's outside like, hurry, I'm gonna get arrested again. There's a dog barking right now, lights are turning on. You're making me stand out here and knock on this door. Like, this is dangerous. please. So they finally let him in. And then what does it say? Verse 16, they saw him and were amazed. 
Why were they amazed? Because God answered their prayer. What? Oh, that's, oh my goodness. You heard us, God. Oh, isn't this so true of how we pray? Who here has ever prayed about something and as you're praying, you're thinking, that'll never happen. Yeah, and that'll never happen. That's how they were praying. God, please let Peter out. Please let him out. It's not Peter. No, it's his angel. No, it is him. This is amazing. I can't believe you're let out. How did you get out? You guys prayed. Oh, well, go figure. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> I love that because I pray just like that. I pray just like these people. God help these two in their marriage. That's never gonna work, man. Right? Change this guy's heart. His heart is never gonna change. And stop the immorality over here. Stop the lust. Stop the alcoholism. Stop the drug addiction. Stop. Now that's gonna happen. I pray just like these guys. Here's what I love. I love the fact that when Luke writes the book of Acts, he talks about the heroism of the church. And there's lots of that. 3,000 saved, 5,000 saved. Miracles happening. But also Luke paints the humanity of the church where they overlook widows and don't help them out. Where Peter has this prejudice, this legalism that leads to racism. Here you have a church that's earnestly praying and they don't even believe God's gonna answer their prayers. I love that because it's just like the church is. It's encouraging to me. It's encouraging that God uses broken vessels like me and like you. And it's encouraging that, that God hears a barely believed prayer. That's what their prayer was. They barely believed it. Uh, they, they had enough faith to say the words and that was about it. And God said, that's good enough for me. My daughter, Carissa, her favorite Bible verse is Matthew 17, 20. It says, if you have faith, like a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. That's about all the faith they had right here. The tiniest, tiniest, tiniest seed of faith. And God heard it and moved a mountain and set Peter free. Take hope. You don't have to muster up great faith. God's not that kind of God who's like measuring like how much faith do you have? Oh, your faith meter is a little bit low. Nah, sorry. God's like, if you just had the tiniest bit, I'll hear it. I'll hear it and I'll act. So Peter here departs. He gets a cameo in chapter 15, but he's pretty much gone from here on out. And then we get the conclusion. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers. <laughs> like, how did these chains come off? What in the world? That dude's been sleeping so soundly. He's been tricking us, man. He's a pool shark. He was lulling us into lethargy because he's been sleeping like 12 hours a day and then he does this at midnight. And so Herod searched for him and did not find him and examined the sentries and ordered them to be put to death. What happened in that day is whatever the sentence of your prisoner was, 
If you lost the prisoner, you served his sentence. So if it was life in prison, you got life in prison. If it was a year in prison, you got the year in prison. If he's getting his head cut off, you got your head cut off. It's a brutal, brutal time. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So here's the politics of the day. Jerusalem, big kind of center of agriculture all around there. They are even to this day, unbelievably good at agriculture in Israel. So they are now supplying food to these two cities. There's a beef, they cut off the supply. So Tyre and Sidon have a really good pack, political action crew. They get in good with Blastus, whose Chamberlain simply means one over his bedroom. So it's a guy that controls everything. It's the, the secretary of state. They get in good with him, probably bribe him, and they get an appointment. And on this appointment, Herod comes out on the appointed day. Josephus says it was actually three days in a row. Dressed up in his Giorgio Armani. They say it was a silver, uh, a threaded silver robe that he would wear. And if you've ever been to Israel, it's right, this amphitheater is right on the ocean. So the sun's glinting off him and he just probably feels like he is it. Look at me. He starts speaking. And when they hear him, they say, oh, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, did they really believe that? No. It's called flattery, right? And even if, Herod knew they were flattering him. Flattery has power. You should read the studies on flattery. It's unbelievable. Even if you know 100% that person is pulling the wool over your eyes, it doesn't matter. We still love to hear it. Like they have found, they, they train, know this, they train certain salespeople that work those areas back where you try on clothes to say this, man, those pants look great on you. And they have found, if you'll say that, your sales jump, you get like double your sales. Just even if the pants look terrible on the person and they know it, doesn't matter. There's something about someone saying, man, those pants look great on you. And then going about, oh, you're like, oh, do they? Oh, I'll take them then, right? And you get home and you're like, why did I buy these? These are horrible. It works. And it's always, flattery is always done. It's not a compliment. Compliments are great. Flattery is always getting an advantage over you. That's what flattery is. 
How can I say something to you to control your action in the way that I want? Which is what Tyre and Sidon wanted to do. How can I say something? How can we say something to this guy so that he starts the grain flowing again? And what they find is this, flattery works best on people whose egos are down, who have lower self-esteem, who are maybe a little self-conscious about a certain thing. That's where flattery has its most powerful persuasion in a person. And Proverbs says this, flattery brings ruin. So how do you defend against that? You have to be real honest with yourself. Like who, who, who am I? And people that are really honest with themselves and really know this is what I am, flattery just, it, it's like water off a duck's back. I don't need it. And that's not who I am. Because you're honest with yourself. You're honest. I think the best way to prevent flattery from allowing somebody to control you and get an advantage over you is to know what the good news says about you. To know your identity in Jesus Christ. To know that your righteousness is not based on you, but it's based on him. To know that you're an adopted son of the high king of the universe. To know that one day you will rule and reign with him forever. And it might be nice if those pants really did work, look good on me, but you know, honestly, in a year it won't matter. But the fact that I rule and reign with Jesus forever, that's what matters. That's how you become bull at your breastplate against flattery. It prevents it from ever getting into your heart. Herod didn't have that. Got into him. Josephus says that he actually doubled over in pain right then, went home, and then worms literally started coming out of him. Pretty awesome. He actually describes the worms. <laughs> you could read it if you want. I don't recommend it. <laughs> Brutal. So let me give you two things and then we'll be done. We get the goodbye from Peter here. He kind of fills the first half of the book of Acts. Who knows Peter's real name? You got the S right. Simon Bar. Jonah, Bar just means son. Simon, son of Jonah. So he is from the family of the prophet Jonah. Remember what Jonah was asked to do? Go to that Gentile crew that you don't really like and speak my word to them. And what did Jonah do? Nah, not gonna do it. God had to really persuade him to go there. And then when he goes there, the ch I wish when I read Jonah that it ended at chapter three with repentance and salvation and God's grace. But then you got chapter four, which is one of the most, it's one of the most, it's the worst ending of any book in the Bible. You're just like, oh man, this prophet of God pouting that his plant got killed when he could care less about the thousands and thousands of babies that would have been killed if he hadn't done his message. You're just like, oh my goodness. It ends horrifically. Now you have Peter, son of Jonah, who's told, hey, go share the good news with some Gentiles. And he obeys. And there's revival. And the door is open. And now the gospel goes not just from a small sect in Jerusalem, now it expands and explodes out into 
the whole entire world because of a descendant of a disobedient prophet. I love that. Because to me, it's almost like God is redeeming the name of Jonah. I'm gonna redeem that name. I'm gonna redeem that family from the shame that might've been there. I'm gonna change your history now. It's like God is tidying up the loose ends of a story that didn't end well in the Old Testament and he's making it end well in a descendant of Jonah. I love that. I think that's what God does all the time. Let me tidy up some ends here. You didn't have a good chapter back then? No problem. Trust me. I'll redeem even that. I'll bring something better out of that. Trust me. That's the first thing I love. Second thing is this. God is sovereign. That means a whole bunch of things to people. For me, it does not mean that God is the cause of bad things happening. Right? I'm not a deterministic theologian. So I don't think God determines the actions of a Herod in cutting off James's head. I don't believe that. I think God is free from those kind of things. I'm not gonna go there. It's libertarian free will. I, am a, I believe in that theologically, I believe in libertarian, that there's liberty in our free will, but it's always bounded, right? I can't do anything I want, but there are choices that I can do. And the source of my decision is not God determining I have to do that, but rather the source of my making that decision lies within me. And I can go, this gets hyper-complicated. I don't wanna get hyper-complicated. So I don't believe God sovereignly uh, blueprints out my life and all I do is like an automaton follow what God has blueprinted out. So I'm not a deterministic person, right? It's not, oh, God must've wanted James's head cut off. God has some kind of a mean streak in him. So then we blame God for evil. Don't believe that at all, okay? But I believe this when it comes to God's sovereignty. God is great enough to take the loose ends and the loose cannons of Herod's and to take all that bad stuff and use it to get exactly what he wants. Verse 24, the word of God increased and multiplied. And I'm gonna get Saul and Bartimaeus back from Jerusalem to Antioch so I can speak to them. We talked about this on Sunday and get them where I want them to go. That God is great enough to use just dumb things people do. He's great enough to actually work it for him, right? So cancer, did God design cancer? Did God sit down and be like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna design this disease that will get people and destroy them and kill them. There is a theology that believes that, that God designed cancer, that it has to be set on his desk and he designed the broken DNA. I say no. God designed Genesis 1 and 2, perfect DNA in people. When we rebelled against that and shook our fist at the creator of the universe, we fractured something and that fracture called sin has massive cataclysmic repercussions. One of those is our very DNA. And out of that fracture comes broken DNA. And with broken DNA comes cancer. That God did not design cancer 
does not like cancer. And one day, Revelation 21 says, he'll wipe away all diseases, including cancer, because it's not his design. And he'll get back his design. But here's what I know. God can use cancer. And I've stopped counting the number of people that I have spoken to that have just cancer. And they'll talk to me because my mom went through it. And they'll talk to me and they'll say, Matt, before I had cancer, I knew about Jesus, but now I know Jesus. And I would not change what has happened to me. I would not change it. That God has taken this really bad, hard thing and oh, he's used it for so much good in my life. And that's what I think you're seeing in this chapter. Well, he didn't have Herod deterministically cut off James's head. And he gave Herod lots of time, about 10 years to repent of his evil. But there comes a point where God says, hey, no more. And I'm gonna use this to increase my word and to get these two guys back where I need them. Edgewater, Jesus never promised us to live happily ever after. But he promised, even when you're down in the valley, I'll walk with you. Matthew 28. Lo, I will be with you even to the end of this age. I'll walk with you through that valley because I've been through it. And I'll be your faithful high priest. And when we go through highs and lows, when churches go through chapter 12, verse twos, the world looks at us. The enemies look at us and they say, how will you take that? How you can take that? And I think the brightest we can shine is when we go through the same thing the world goes through, but we go through it very differently with a shalom, with a peace, with a hope that God can show up at 11.59 and 59 seconds. That's what I think. And there's this great story in the Old Testament. It's 1 Kings chapter 20, where God saves Israel and they fight the Arameans and they defeat the Arameans on the mountain. And the Arameans leave and they go, well, their God's a God of the mountain. Let's fight them in the valley next time. And so God says, you know what? I'm gonna defeat them in the valley too so that they'll know I'm the God of the valley as well. I think that's a spiritual lesson. People be like, oh yeah, you love God because everything's good, Job, right? What about when it's not good? Is God the God of the valley too? Our greatest light shines we go through the valley and we still say, God, you're good and what you do is good and I trust you. And so maybe you're here today and it feels like 1159 for you and it's been hard for you. That happens. It's not God getting you. It's the brokenness of this world. It's the brokenness of people. But God can take those hard things, those difficult things, those bad things, and he gives them for his good. Trust him. So if you need prayer on that, I'll be up here. Some elders will be up here. Some Titus two ladies will be up here. We'd love to pray for you. Pray that God's presence is felt. That through that difficulty, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are in the fiery furnace of the enemy, that Jesus shows up. And what's been binding you like ropes, they're burned away and you're set free 
to live in chapter 13, mission. So Jesus today, we read a chapter that has both a deep valley in it, the death of James and a miraculous mountain, the salvation of Peter. And the big story is your word increased in both of them. The church prayed more earnestly because of James. Chapter 13 happens because of chapter 12. So I ask that we would be a group of people who learn to trust you even at midnight. Learn to earnestly pray before midnight and to know there's always hope, that we serve a God of hope. So may we go from here this evening, Lord, those that are on the mountain shouting, enjoying, and those that are in the valley sensing your presence declaring to a world that's skeptical that you are the God of the mountains and the God of the valleys. That yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with us. So we ask that you would go with us this night and shine through us as broken clay pots that you're our treasure and the world needs to see you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.